Welcome to At the Table, Christian Community for the Common Good, a podcast for folks curious about the church's call to be faithful neighbors in the places where they live and worship. I'm your host, Nicholas Tangen. Thanks for being here. Now, pull up a chair and let's talk about what's possible when neighbors come together at the table. that I always, in my training capacity, I always ask people, um, did we win? If we won a campaign, did we actually win if no one won that campaign with you? Mm-hmm. If no leader was developed in winning that campaign, did we actually win? Right. And I think part of the reason I say that is because we can go about being the most powerful individual that we, we think <laughs> we are and think we have all the answers and all the solutions but we're not in everyone's shoes, right? Yep. We don't know what everyone's going through. We don't know how one particular thing impacts everyone, right. even in our same identities, right? And so I think a lot of times that is the opposite of the power that we've experienced, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's actually part of the reason community organizing is so misunderstood mm-hmm. is because you have to have an experience of it Right. To understand that you can actually come together in community and decide on big things right together. Today's episode is a conversation with Catalina Morales Baina, the formation and coaching manager at Faith in Action, a national organizing institution working for racial and economic justice. She's a student, a dreamer, and a practiced community organizer. We talk about the discipline of community organizing, power and power building, and how dominant culture churches can take part in meaningful community organizing in their own communities. Catalina is a real one, and she speaks powerfully from her own experience and her years of training and organizing in the field. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Catalina Morales Baena. Catalina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, Well, I wonder just to uh, get us started, if you could introduce yourself a little bit, tell us who you are, what's the the work you do. Um, Yeah, give us a little introduction. Yeah, so, you know, like you said, my name is Catalina Morales Baena. Um, Right now, I am the Director of Learning for Faith in Action. That's a national faith-based organization. And um, basically, I was hired last year, at the end of last year, to create a new curriculum as well as like a new training and development system for the organization uh, for community organizers in the country. We relate to about 30 organizations around the country, and there's also an international part of Faith in Action. So part of my job is to just restructure or create or edit uh, how, you know, organizers are being trained in community organizing, how leaders are being trained in community organizing and mm-hmm. everyone around that, basically. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been a community organizer for a lot of years. You were with Isaiah in Minnesota here and now with Faith in Action. Um, but 
community organizing, I think, is one of those disciplines that often is misunderstood. Um, you know, people sometimes think, well, I organized our community block party. Does that count as community organizing? Uh, well, I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder, give us give us kind of the entry level definition of community organizing. What What is community organizing? Yes. So, you know, for me, I was really trained on grassroots community organizing, which basically means that you are working with communities, whether it's your community or communities directly impacted by a certain, you know, unfortunate, like, you know, disproportion or inequity. And you bring them together and you get to know their stories and you get to know what's happening to them. And then you bring as many of those people together who are being impacted by this issue. And then you fight so that those things change. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most simple version that I could do. You know, mm -hmm. I, right now, like the Black Party, it's not about <laughs> organizing events, mm -hmm. which people do confuse it a lot, right? Like they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, you know how to organize. It's not actually about organizing events. It's more about organizing people mm -hmm. to see themselves as you know, I think for people, for faith people like myself to see them, themselves as made in the image of God, mm. you know, to value their, their worth and to value their lives as much as possible yes. and, you know, really fight for respect. Sometimes it's just basic dignity that people don't have. Right, right. And one of the basic pieces in community organizing is building power. And I often feel like uh, in faith communities, especially, we, we get really uncomfortable with that word power. Right. Um, yeah. Say a little bit about what do we what do we mean by power in community organizing? What does that actually look like? Yes, I think power, you know, even when I started organizing 11 years ago as a leader in my church and no one had actually introduced the concept of power to me. And I was 21 years old and my experience of power was bad. Like it was just power is bad. Right. Power corrupts people. Power. Uh, takes advantage of people. And I had, you know, in community organizing, I was asked why I believed that. And that's where I started realizing that power had always been used to hurt me, right? Or hurt the people that I loved. And so one of the main lessons in community organizing is people are always going to take power, right? And depending on who those persons or people are, they might use it for good and they might use it for bad. Mm -hmm. But power in itself, right, yep. is not bad. And so I had to wrestle with, okay, if I want to do good, then how do I gain more power with people around me to do good? Yep. And so it's really about the human, right, or the human who hold power, yes. whether that power is good or bad. And yep. I think all of us, I'm, I'm a true believer that all of us have experienced power in a bad way. All of us. Like I, if people tell me, oh no, you know, like so-and-so is so privileged then they've never, I just think, well, maybe you don't know their story fully. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we really do in community organizing, we have to talk about power. Yep. And unless people are okay with the things that are impacting them, mm -hmm. you know, there's no way to change things unless you have a relationship with power. And I love what you said, too, about um, uh, power and community organizing is in relationship with others, right? So it's it's not about one person building enough power to kind of unilaterally make decisions on behalf of everybody else, but it's it's about a community building power to um, 
to to change policies to get to get a decision maker to agree to um, uh, to their terms or their uh, their policy proposals and a community really trying to make their their place uh, a better and and more whole uh, community right correct yes and I think you know it's important to know like not one person has a perfect answer right like mm -hmm. you get better solutions with when many people are involved in creating decisions and creating a process for decisions. And mm -hmm. one thing that I always, in my training capacity, I always ask people, um, did we win? If we won a campaign, did we actually win if no one won that campaign with you? Mm -hmm. If no leader was developed in winning that campaign, did we actually win? Right. And I think part of the reason I say that is because we can go about being the most powerful individual that we, we think we are and think we have all the answers and all the solutions, but we're not in everyone's shoes, right? Yeah. We don't know what everyone's going through. We don't know how one particular thing impacts everyone, right. even in our same identities, right? And so I think a lot of times that is the opposite of the power that we've experienced, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's actually part of the reason community organizing is so misunderstood mm -hmm. is because you have to have an experience of it right. to understand that you can actually come together in community and decide yeah. on big things right together and yes. move them. Together. Right. Yeah. You mentioned that you started organizing 11 years ago as a leader. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what was it that brought you to community organizing or got you involved in, uh, in this work? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Amen. All right. End of podcast. <laughs> Jesus brought me to this work. No. Um, I mean, really it did, but I was yeah. more, uh, <laughs> you know, I was raised, um, Catholic, you know, and we were devout Catholics, like really conservative devout Catholics growing up. And, um, I had not been able to get citizenship in this country uh, in the 21 years that I was at the time. I had given up trying, and so I DACA existed by then, right? Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals mm -hmm. was um, happening. And I didn't apply right away because I was afraid that they would just like use this to deport us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, life is really hard. Um, without documents. And I just was like, I don't have another option. So I applied for DACA. And in the months that I had made that decision and was applying, I remember going to mass every day, praying to God to give me a reason to live. And that sounds crazy, but it was, mm -hmm. was the truth. Like yeah. my life was, it, for me, it felt like I didn't have any meaning. Mm -hmm. And it also felt like I was just pretty much a disappointment. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to go into higher education once I got out of high school. And I was in a situation that I really didn't like. And I just was, you know, feeling like I was a statistic and there was nothing I could do about it. And so uh, what's kind of funny, right, is like one of those Sundays during mass, after mass, this Jesuit priest came, comes up, this young white guy, mm -hmm. right? becoming a Jesuit priest comes into, uh, you know, 100% uh, Latino mass mm -hmm. and with like his bare minimum Spanish, <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a, ma there's going to be a meeting after mass about driver's license. Mm -hmm. And that week I had gotten my work permit for the first time. 
And I didn't know about community organizing, but I thought, well, now that I have my DACA, I might be able to do something, maybe more than I had been able to do before. Right. And so I went to this meeting and the only thing he said was sign up for this list. Um, and I need to point people from the church so that I can keep in contact with when we're doing like actions or things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And he talked about driver's license and things. So I, you know, living in this country since I was two, uh, coming back and forth from Mexico a few times, one of the biggest, I think, traumas that I have was driving without driver's license. So I, I really felt connected to this fight. And I felt like now that I could get a driver's license, this was a fight that I could do. I really didn't know what that meant at that moment. (laughs) Yep. Um, But he, you know, called me right after that meeting and scheduled a one-to-one. And I did not know what a one-to-one was. I just thought he was kind of weird. And (laughs) let's go. That's how everything began. But I think the reason I say Jesus is because for me, there was not a moment in the, in the time that he, I was learning organizing and this organizer was organizing me mm-hmm. and we were talking about driver's license, there wasn't a moment where I doubted that this is what like Jesus would want people to do. Mm. And I think part of it is more because of the doctrine of like, you know, social teachings in the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes we use this a lot, but like, you know, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, like yeah. I always thought, you know, even if you don't have a lot, there's still something you have to give. And my grandmother was like a living example of that as a Catholic mm-hmm. growing up. And I just always wanted to be like her. And so I thought this is the thing, right? Yep. This is the thing. I know what that suffering is like. Yep. I don't no longer have to go through that suffering every day. Now that I can get a driver's license, why wouldn't I do something so other people could have that? Right. And so that's why I started. Leading up to the 2016 presidential election, then-candidate Donald Trump launched his campaign with a racist tirade against immigrants in the U.S. and gained a massive following by appealing to the xenophobia all too present in our country. In Minnesota, Trump's campaign and election sparked renewed efforts among community organizers to establish protections for immigrants including efforts to establish a criminal defense fund, separation agreements between local law enforcement and immigration and customs enforcement, and securing driver's licenses for those without documents. The success of those campaigns was the result of immigrants in Minnesota sharing their stories and building power across the state. And this past year, the Minnesota state government finally passed a driver's licenses for all bill, a testament to the power of committed and accountable community organizing. I asked Catalina to share a bit about her own experience in community organizing and to reflect on why it's important for faith communities to be engaged in the work of building power to create social and political change. And part of what I hear you saying too, and I think that this has been my experience in community organizing and, and other work is... Um, you know, the the opportunity to experience your own sense of dignity and capacity and the ability to um, to have an impact, right? Like that really matters uh, for folks. And, you know, a lot of community organizing, I know you know this, is losing, right? <laughs> like you lose a lot. Um, but 
the the winds i think often come through very real winds we want to win but also through that the way you kind of gain a a, a a more full sense of yourself and your own power within that larger community yeah yeah definitely like i think one of the things that i started getting clear like i think a year into my organizing was how much i had deeply believed that i was a criminal who crossed the border undocumented and wasn't like i thought you know well, would God be okay with that, right? Like right. maybe that's why all these horrible things have happened to us, right? Because yep. we broke the law and maybe we deserve to not have documents, you know? And so for me, that was a version of, of dehumanizing myself, Yeah. right? Like yep. that was a version of, and so so if that's true for me, what that meant is that if that was true, then in my everyday life, I was acting out of that, right? I was right. acting out of a belief that I was a criminal. I was acting out of a belief that I wasn't going to be able to do X, Y, and Z things in my life. And yeah. I think, um, you know, I'm still not, I still don't have documents. I'm still, mm-hmm. um, 11 years later from that, um, <laughs> still don't have a pathway to citizenship. Right. But I don't believe that anymore. And, you know, I also before not being able to find a pathway to citizenship was a thing that would really impact my well-being. Mm-hmm. And now it doesn't because, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it's it's a paper that this country gives you that people add too much value to, yeah. right? right? That document that would provide me with a better stable life, mm-hmm. but it would provide me with more value. Right. You know, I have enough yeah. value now as I will later. And, I believe that in my own perspective and my own, like, you know, like Christian belief, I believe that, mm-hmm. because, you know, God made me in his image or her yeah. image. Right. Yep. And that's enough. Right. Yep. That's enough. Yep. Absolutely. When you're speaking right to the, the impact that those, those labels have, you know, and when we think about our, our neighbors, as those labels, not only is there the potential for internalizing that, like you were saying, right, internalizing that that label for yourself, but it impacts the way we say we see the neighbor then, you know, and how often do we talk about people as homeless, as poor, as undocumented, as, all of those things, right? And it's a way of looking at people um, as fundamentally deficient. And, and like you were saying, it, it robs robs people of their their dignity and and their sense of value and yeah yeah correct i think you know and i think um this this country in particular every country has their problems um but you know if we live here so this country in particular has a big belief that people have the ability to accomplish anything if they really wanted it And I don't think that's true, you know, and I think there's layers of why that's not true, right? There's so many disparities, Mm -hmm. but we also tend to measure people by our experience of the world. Right. And I think, you know, that happens in all the layers you just mentioned. And so at least for me, what I've done in my own like um, identity is like Mm -hmm. every time I'm in a space with people who don't look like me, I tell them I'm a DACA recipient. And if they ask more about my story, I tell them like, you know, that I was undocumented and I tell them that I crossed the board. I tell them everything, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the and why? And I never know how people are going to react. Yeah. But the reason I tell them this is because, you know, 
so many of those times, so many of those times, they tell me that they had never met someone like me before. Mm. And that to me is shocking. Right. Um, not because they should have, but it's it's so many of us exist in this world with my identity and in that particular right space of like undocumented or documented space. And I realized they might have already met someone like me, but that person didn't feel safe sharing yeah. who they were. Exactly. Or they might not have never met someone like me. And at least mm -hmm. now they can get put a face to the issue. Right. And they can decide for themselves what they believe about the issue, right? And yeah. so now they have a face, now they have stories, and then they can go from there. And, you know, the reaction to it is not for me to take. Like, I don't have to react to their reaction, but I also don't have to take it in because I already know my worth, right? And I already exactly. know my value. And that came out of community organizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a, a story or a time in community organizing where that sense of feeling powerful, like just in, you know, in your own sense of self, but feeling your capacity and, and your power. Um, do you have a, a time you remember where, where that felt really close or really clear? Really clear. Yeah. That's just such a good question. Um, this is going to sound weird because it, that scenario was not great, but sure, sure. <laughs> this was what, during what we call the Trump era. And um, I had a leader who, you know, had been working quite a bit on sanctuary. I probably knew my, my worth before then, but this is the first time that I think I had to act it out. Mm. And I had to prove, like, I kind of, it was a moment where I had to prove to myself if I really mm. believe what I said I believed about myself. <laughs> and yep. so um, I had a leader who, um, he was like around my dad's age and he had been, incarcerated already for an accident he had and there was a fights back and forth around him being deported or not being deported and he was finally out and he was in sanctuary mm -hmm. and he had a court hearing about his case and i had prepped leaders to come with me to this court hearing because we knew that a lot of times people get taken from their court hearings to immigration like they get deported and we knew that there was a big possibility that ICE was going to show up at his court hearing and try to take him. And, you know, we had trained a lot on, um, like, basically, like, um, witnesses, like, to something like, how do you videotape some of these things? What do you do with, with the footage? What do you say? What do you not say? Right. And so about five leaders and I came to this court hearing. And in the court hearing, he... Midway through the court hearing, I see these two men come into the court hearing and they're dressed as civilians. There's it's two white men dressed as civilians. They're not even, yeah. you know, um, dressed like ICE agents. But I could see how much they were focused on my leader. Yeah. And I was like, that's them. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to take him. And, you know, as a DACA recipient, I do have to be careful in what scenarios I put myself in because it's so easy to lose DACA. Like they've made it so difficult to be a human right. and still have this, this permit. And I just, there was something inside of me that was like, you know, this isn't okay. Like there's nothing about what is happening here that is okay. And I'm surprised this is legal in this country that yeah. has so many 
laws against everything. How is this legal? You know, and I, while we were in the court hearing, I prepped my leaders and I was like, take out your cameras. We're going to follow them. We're going to ask them who they are. We're going to ask for identification. And, you know, like a few of them walked in front of my leader and another group of us walked behind him. And as we exited the court hearing, all while this judge is seeing us, right? Like the judge also knows what's going to happen. Of course. We walk out of these doors and they start yanking on him. Like it wasn't even like, you know, they said, well, you have to come with us. But they start yanking, like grabbing his body and pulling him into the elevator. Mm. And I just was like, they're not going to take him without an explanation. Yeah. And because this isn't, this should not be something that can happen to people. Right. And for me, it really felt like when the cartel in Mexico mm-hmm. just, like kidnaps people. That's what uh, it felt. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like these strange men are coming and taking someone, yep. you know, and there was no identification showed to us. We kept asking them for identification. There was none. And this happens all the time. That's the only reason I knew they were probably ICE agents because this happens all the time. Yeah. And there was no explanation given to us. And they just were like, we're taking him. He's coming with us as they're pushing him into the elevator. And all of us came into the elevator. Like we were all like, no, we're going with you in the elevator. And they were, they said to us, you're not going into the elevator with us. Mm-hmm. And they proceeded to literally yank all of us and, and pull all of us out of this elevator. Mm. And I could have said, no, I'm scared. You know, I'm not going to do this because I'm scared for my own status in this country. Yeah. I'm not going to get into any situation where these agents could identify me in some sort of way. Yeah. But then I remembered, like, you know, I think a lot of that would help me, too, is my faith of, you know, God is with you and a witness, too, to everything that people are going through and you're going through. Right. And fear is not a good thing. Right. Like fear is something that debilitate you yes and it's a lot of it is rooted in trauma mm-hmm. and lies about what this country makes you believe about yourself and that's a moment where i was like i don't believe those lies anymore and you know what if these ice agents takes me then maybe that's the path that we need to take because mm. that's that's what we have to do you have to be able to like hear people's stories witness and then take action yeah yep. and how was i gonna leave this man alone right. like that's what I just kept thinking. Like, how do yeah. I leave them alone? Yeah. There's so many stories of these ICE agents beating people up, hurting them, you know, and I just was like, he's not safe. Yeah. And um, they did drag me out of the elevator, unfortunately, because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we all have limitations. <laughs> <laughs> My upper body strength is not great. Um, <laughs> And we ran down the stairs and this is why I say this thing about the cartels. Mm-hmm. We came out of the building right in time to see a van that was unmarked. Mm. It looked like those vans that, you know, transport like, like, um, I don't know how to say that, but like merchandise. Yeah. Right. Don't those in the back, you know, yeah. it was an unmarked van with no windows and we saw them just push him into this tr- into this van and disappear. Yeah. That's so scary. And I thought to myself, like, this happens all the time when people yeah. get killed. Yeah. We did not know where they were going to take him. We did not know their names. Yeah. 
We didn't we didn't know their badge numbers, nothing. There was no uniform, no marked vehicle. Yeah. And that's when I realized like I'm no longer scared of the lies that are told about us mm. as immigrants. Yeah. That dehumanize me. Yes. Yeah. It was a sad day, but there was also a realization for me around like Yeah. You know, fear is a big thing. Fear is a big thing for immigrants and hiding is a big thing for immigrants. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yep, absolutely. You, I think you told me once that the experience of being an undocumented immigrant in the United States is similar to the experience of being stalked. Like there's someone stalking you at all times. It it does feel that way. It does feel that way. And it always feels like you have to hide parts of you and you have to you know, not say who you really are or, you know, and it's showing for those of us who were raised here, mm-hmm. it's such an ingrained practice mm-hmm. that is so hard to let go of once right. you're older, even for yeah. people who maybe have documents, you know, mm-hmm. at this point. And so. Well, with the rhetoric in this country, I mean, that's not, you know, yeah. it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't feel like documents are a sense of security Exactly. And I always say that to people. Um, How many people in this country are citizens of this country, born and raised here and have no rights? So many, Mm -hmm. so many people. I think, you know, that's why it's so important. I think in particular for undocumented immigrants to stop associating their value to documents. You know, they're going to give, they do give us a better life in the sense of, you know, work and driving and, but they don't give us dignity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've said a, you know, we've said a little bit about a beautiful story, uh, by the way. And, and like you said, right, like sometimes it's in those, those scary times when your own sense of power really emerges, right? It's kind of when you get kind of confronted with, is this what I value? Um, you know, and it kind of, it can be both motivating or debilitating. Mm-hmm. Um, it's say a little bit about um, why is it important in particular for churches and faith communities to be thinking about building power and shifting policy in their communities? You know, I mean, in some ways, I think we often hear, you know, well, the church should be above politics or stay out of politics uh, somehow. Why, why is it important for us to actually be engaged critically in that public square? Right. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the problem that I see today with like, um communities and politics is feeding someone who's hungry and making sure they're not homeless is not politics. Mm. Yeah. And whoever's telling you that that's politics is lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I think people, we tend to sometimes get scared, right? When someone says, oh, that's politics. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's in our faith practices. It's in our faith teachings that people who need a set of things to just literally, you know, be able to live their life on a daily basis. Yeah. That has been turned into a political conversation. Right. But it's really a conversation of humanness. Like, mm-hmm. who we believe, right, that because yeah. someone made a mistake, they don't deserve to eat today. Right. Right. Do we believe that it is okay for us to live our daily lives knowing that they're out there 
mm-hmm. starving to death. Right. As Christians or as people who believe in God. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is what I think communities of faith need to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. Take away the political conversation. Yeah. And think about well, who do I believe God is, mm-hmm. right? And for those of us who believe in Jesus, who do I believe Jesus was in his lifetime? Yeah. And what did Jesus focus on in his lifetime? Yeah. If you actually have those conversations, you're going to start to realize, no, actually that person that I see asking for money every day mm-hmm. when I go and enter the highway, yeah. I should care about why they're there. And I should be worried that they've Mm -hmm. spent this whole entire summer asking for money without any shoes. Right. And I think when we start thinking that way, you start to realize what is politics and what is not politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a power conversation. That's why power is so important in community organizing. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I, I think a lot of times it's easier to look the other way. Yeah. As human beings, it's easier for us to not take responsibility over the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. And I've had these conversations with people where people have literally said that to me. I think you're right. I think it sucks. People are suffering, but if I don't look at it, I don't have to think about it. (laughs) Yeah. hundred percent. And when I hear those responses, I think to myself, well, what would happen if you did look at it? Mm -hmm. You know, like, And communities of faith have unfortunately been so concerned with the four walls around them that it's like they have put like four walls around their eyes. Mm. Yeah. And and that's my biggest um, kind of like hurdle Mm -hmm. as a Christian. We'll fundraise to expand the church building. We'll fundraise to expand the church school. We'll fundraise to do X, Y, and Z for the church. You know, I, I even heard someone, someone told me the other day that their church has like a um, a bank account for like one of the instruments in the church. Oh, and sure. I, I was like, what? It's going on here. Gotta and keep that organ in tip top shape, you know? Yes, the organ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I thought to myself, why have we as a church become so consumed with material needs? Mm-hmm. And I think that the only way to get people to not see those things, to not see those disconnects and connections, is to tell them, oh, it's just politics. We don't talk about politics. Right. 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 Or, you know, there were so many times where I would talk to a clergy person or, with people and I would say, did you know, like, you know, that 80% of your church is undocumented and they would be like, oh, we don't talk about politics. <laughs> so my being as a human person is now yeah. a, a pop, it's an issue. It's yeah. a politics. Like, no. And, and, and you can't talk about it. So I can't talk <laughs> now about my actual human experience. I can't talk about my human experience. Exactly. Yeah. And so how are we supposed to play our Christian roles? Right. That's the, that's the question that I also have for people. Yeah. You know, and sometimes we think it's like God in us. It's just God in us. It's just God in mm-hmm. us. But I think what we tend to mistake, right, is like 
God is in everyone surrounding you. And so, you know, are you going to let go of the opportunity of actually getting to know people and their suffering and getting to know God? You know, I think that is where God is. And I just don't think if it's having to do with anything that involves people and, you know, things, structures, people who are oppressing them, Mm -hmm. deep pain, real, you know, starvation, lack of clothing, anything that is deeply harmful to the human person, that's not politics. Right. Right. It's something deeper than than what we often mean by politics. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I can see why the connections made to politics, that's where laws are being drawn out, all the stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Regardless of a law or not, the question is, what are you doing about it? Community organizing is when people impacted by a problem build power to get a decision maker, a legislator, a landlord, a business owner, to say yes to something they might otherwise say no to. It's essential that organizing campaigns are led and directed by those neighbors who are most directly impacted by a problem. Building power through these campaigns is an opportunity for neighbors to experience and possess dignity within systems and structures that too often try to rob them of it. Catalina is an incredible example of someone who discovered an alternative story about herself and her community through community organizing. So I asked her to reflect on the importance of organizing being led from the grassroots and how dominant culture churches and communities can contribute as allies and neighbors in the work of social and political change. Uh, Charity is important. I actually, I, uh, I'm a believer of charity is not something that's um, at all times bad because it's needed. It's the immediate, yep. it's meeting the immediate need, right? Yep. It's um, making sure that people have what they need today yep. because structures are, you know, oppressing them or have oppressed them or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that people also have to understand is that really resonated with me mm-hmm. as someone who, you know, I grew up very poor in this country. We were um, homeless for a while. We were like what people call squatters for a while, you know, undocumented. Like there's so many like structures that have been yeah. deeply oppressive to, to my family and I. I think what people have to realize is that it's a top-down relationship. So the problem with charity long-term is that it's a top-down relationship. Yep. It teaches me that I don't have what I need yep. and that I need to ask someone for it. Right. And that person, think about, if you think about yourself, if you've ever done charity work, mm-hmm. there's an immediate gratification that comes out of it. Yes. Right? Like I've been to the soup kitchens. I've, you know, packed uh, groceries for people and you feel great. You yeah. feel like, yes, I'm doing <laughs> a question. People are going to yep. eat today. You know, <laughs> you're on a cloud of like, greatness yep but the person asking for that basket of food doesn't feel that right the person asking for that basket of food feels shame Mm -hmm. feels a deep realization of how little power they have yeah over their life that day and the next morning and they have deeply internalized that they're there because it was their fault. Right. Right. So 
if that is the way we function 24 seven, if we're never going to get out of that scenario, the people yeah. who need to see their humanness will never see it through charity. Right. And the people giving charity will always feel like good about it, regardless if they're actually mm -hmm. making an impact on how people see themselves. Yep. And for me, that's the difference between charity and organizing. Yes. Because community organizing gives people the understanding of why they're asking for food in the first place. Yep. That's not rooted in it's their fault. It's right. rooted in the structures that got them to a point, right, mm -hmm. to have to ask for food. And then it makes them see that they have the agency to decide if they're actually going to change that for themselves, but not alone. Yeah, exactly. They're going to change that in community. Yep. That they're never going to be alone if they're in community. Yep. I think part of the reason that I stood up to that ICE agent is because I knew I wasn't alone. Yeah. I knew that if they took me with my leader, I just had to call a few people and there would be a whole <laughs> bunch of organizers around the country who would demand justice. Yes. Would I have done that before community organizing? Of course not. I wouldn't even have gone to the courthouse. <laughs> For sure. Yes. So that's the difference between charity and community organizing. Yep. And sometimes some of us need charity to get to community organizing. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's okay that it exists. Mm -hmm. But it should not be the only place people stop in. Yes. And I think we haven't done a good job as communities of faith to introduce people to a path of dignity. Right, right. Well, and this gets me to one of the one of the things I've been noticing more and more, I think, as uh, especially dominant culture churches start to uh, learn about and, and get interested in the tools of community organizing. Sometimes I feel like that relationship of charity gets transferred to community organizing, right? Where you've got exclusively right. dominant culture folks not experiencing the problem, organizing, maybe, maybe they're, you know, um, really well-intentioned, right? We know that um, there's some really big problems around immigration in this country and we want to fix that, or there's big problems around hunger in this country and we want to face that. Um, but there's a way in which it still ends up being done on behalf of someone else. Um, can you say a little bit about how, how can churches, these dominant culture churches, how do we enter into that organizing space as uh, allies and coworkers, not as, um, you know, uh, charity as like, we're organizing right. on behalf of others. Right. Yes. This is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and people have a lot of opinions about it. I think mm -hmm. for me, um, I go back to what I said earlier that I don't believe that people there's not, I don't, I think everyone has gone through something in their life. Yep. Some feeling of, of power being done to hurt them. Mm -hmm. In community organizing, we say power over, right? Yep. Uh, when power is corrupt and abusive. Mm -hmm. And I think that people who maybe are not experiencing that anymore, right? More privileged in the sense of like economics or race. Mm -hmm. I think you need to think back to what is calling you into that space. Right. Right. And then organizing with some of us call it self-interest. Right. But yeah. why, what is the reason for you to care so deeply about people being in pain? Mm -hmm. Because you don't have to care about people being in pain. Right. You could just go live your privileged life. Um, 
but you care. Because yep. if you didn't care, you wouldn't be in the room. Yep. And you care, um, it could be parts of it, right? Like layers of it could be that you care because you believe in your faith, you mm -hmm. know, and whatever that faith may look like is calling you to be in the room. But it's also that you, that, that part is not all of it. Part of it is that you know what power over looks like. You know what abusive power is. And I would start questioning what that experience was like for you. Right. And that can start stewarding you to what space you come in, right? Mm -hmm. But when you come into a space, you need to be conscious that you're going to make a decision about a certain action or direction mm -hmm. very differently than someone who's going through it at that moment. Exactly. And so that's, I think, where we miss a lot of our, you know, progressive allies. <laughs> right. Um, I've been in a lot of spaces, right, where people who are not undocumented at that moment or have never been undocumented say, well, let's say yes to this law because whatever, right? Yeah. And I don't agree with that because maybe that law has something that's going to directly impact people at that moment that I know what it's like. I know what yeah. it's, that impact will feel, and I think it's horrible. Sometimes I do need those allies to maybe like ask ask questions, right? Like, am I making this right. decision out of fear? Am I making this decision out of power? What am I making this decision of? Mm -hmm. But I don't need them to make the final decision. Right. I think that having them to have conversations about this, to like mm -hmm. think through stuff, to strategize, to think about the resources we could pull together. Yeah. You know, people who are privileged have a million resources I don't have. Absolutely. And I have found that in my work, when they pull those resources, my work can benefit so much, right? Or it can move faster. So those resources can be pulled. Their opinions, I think, do matter. But in the end of the day, mm -hmm. who needs to make that decision is not the people who are not going through that thing, that yep. issue. Yep. You know, and sometimes, like, I've been in, for example, like, coalition spaces where Everyone who's directly impacted ends up being a voting member, but not a, but everybody else isn't. Mm -hmm. Everybody else isn't all the time. Right. Everybody's helping through strategy, but when the decisions need to get made, they don't get to vote. Yep. Um, that's a way that I I've, I've seen things work. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's sometimes ways where I have seen that people just don't want to understand this point. Right. And they're like, no, I know so much. And, you know, because I know so much, yep. you guys should listen to me. Yep. And part of what I noticed about that is like, um, there's a big emphasis in this country around knowledge. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in particular with white, white people, <laughs> where uh -huh. if, I, if I know enough, that's enough, right? right? Or if I know more, people will respect me. The yep. more I know, the more knowledge, then there's more respect. Or also the flip side of that for people like myself is like, well, they know more because they're more educated than I am. They're, they know more because they have more knowledge. Yep. And what I think people need to understand about that is that knowledge isn't the only way you know things. Yeah. Right? Like experience matters in organizing. Yep. Yep. Knowing yeah. about something isn't the same as knowing something intimately. Exactly. Thank you. And so when I am right now, right, if we think about, for example, housing, mm -hmm. if my landlord is kicking me out today from my housing, right, 
that is not the same as you knowing all the laws about housing. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and that person who is getting kicked out of their housing, right? Mm -hmm. Because the housing is crazy expensive and the laws are horrible around housing. Yep. That person should be able to decide what's going to happen to them exactly. right now and in the yep. future more than you who know the laws. Exactly. You who know the laws have resources to share with that person. And yep. that's a role you could deeply play. Absolutely. But not that, not that role. And so I think um, it's about shifting your thinking around mm -hmm. what's valuable. Right. And knowing everything or knowing how an issue works is not the mm -hmm. only thing that's valuable in organizing. Amen. Well, and having a mindset, I remember, you know, when I, when I first went through organizing training, two things that I remember. One was the definition that I learned was, you know, community organizing is when people who are impacted by a problem um, build power to get a decision maker to, um, to do something about that problem, right? The people impacted are the ones building that power. Right. And then secondly was never do for someone else something they can do on their own. And in some ways, community organizing isn't so much about, I mean, it is about getting those wins, right? We want to get those wins. But the, the first level of, of the win is finding ways for folks who have for, for so long been told you don't have power, you don't have agency, you don't have dignity, to find that, um, to have the space where they... Um, they can build their own sense of power and capacity. And if as churches, you know, and white dominant churches kind of come into that organizing space saying, well, we've got the resources, we've got the knowledge. Um, so let us just do this kind of on behalf of, right? Um, we actually are kind of robbing the movement of, of its soul, you know, in a lot of ways, because then yeah. it just becomes one more act of charity. Exactly. It becomes one more act of charity. I mean, mm -hmm. in that example of housing, like if that person doesn't get to fight for their rights, learn housing laws for their own protection, yep. you know, really stand up for themselves in the story and what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the, you f fixing all of that and getting all the answers for them? Yep. And what's the difference between that and charity? Not Nothing. You're awesome. still the person who's going home feeling great. Yep. about the work you just did yep. and this person is still feeling like they don't know their rights and they're maybe stupid or whatever it is right yep. like yep. we have to change that dynamic like the yes. dynamic of organizing is bringing people to feeling equal exactly right like we all have knowledge and we yep. all have experiences to bring to the table and if we do it together we're going to have more power amen and that's yeah. the difference right exactly exactly yeah, that's that um, dispersing that power, shifting it out so that everybody involved feels like um, they're able to make decisions about their own lives and their own well-being. Right. And yeah. it's also the last thing I'm going to say is you being OK with that. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're a person that has privilege in one way or another and are not directly impacted by the mm -hmm. issue that you're working on. Yep. You being OK with people who aren't directly impacted telling you the role they need you to play yep and you playing that role mm -hmm. and going home and still feeling on um, cloud nine like yep. yep you did your role because you yes. were asked by people who are deeply impacted by something to do yep. something and you did it and you followed their leadership yes yes and that's great mm -hmm. that's the role right and so Amen. a lot of times i see people 
very unhappy about not being decision makers. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Learning, learning to follow. I mean, that's one of those, uh, I mean, and honestly, that's one of those deep Christian practices, right? Is like, is learning to follow and, and in the movement work, especially that's, that's key too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe a, a final question here for you. Um, what, what keeps you in, in the struggle? What keeps you grounded in the work that you do? It would be, I imagine it would be really easy after so many years of doing this work to be like, peace, I'm out. I'm going to do something else. <laughs> what keeps you in it? Yeah. Um, yeah. That temptation is there every day. Because no? <laughs> <laughs> organizing is hard. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, I do work on the national level now. So it's, I don't have to go through like a daily wrestling as an organizer, mm -hmm. but working on working in justice is hard. Like working for justice is hard. Yeah. And I th I said this, but I'll, I'll dig deeper in it. Like, um, I think for me, a lot of times people assume that my pain that Brahmington's work is deeply rooted on being an immigrant. And I, mm -hmm of it are like that's those are parts of my identity but i think the biggest reason why i have stayed the, as long as i've stayed and why i feel so much conviction is because i'm a woman mm -hmm. and i think sometimes women don't talk about this as much but uh or only in certain spaces do we talk about it and, you know, I am part of a church that still does not consider women equals. And I'm part of, you know, a culture that also wrestles with that on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And regardless of how progressive this country wants to say it is, we are seeing, right, like the return of laws against women and their ability to act on their bodies that we haven't seen in a long time. So for me, what really solidified like my story and how I'm directly impacted was my mom having to be a single mom in the nineties. Mm. And, you know, for Mexican communities that was still not widely accepted. Right. And it was not accepted in our Catholic church. Mm. As well. So I witnessed right from the early age of nine years old, how much my mom was othered mm -hmm. for being a woman who decided that she got a decision yeah. in her own life. She yes. got to make decisions for herself. And unfortunately, our faith community was one of the biggest shamers of her deciding that she was worthy yep. and a lot of our family. And I think back on those years, and I think that that really solidified for her her worth, right? After yeah. deciding to get a divorce, yeah. I think it solidified how little help she was going to be given by people surrounding her, and also how little value. Yeah. And so, you know, when I said earlier, like if people would have organized my parents, I mm -hmm. think if someone would have organized her in the community we were living in, which was like living in deep poverty, right? Yeah. There was a reason to organize this community. Right. If someone would have organized her and rooted her in her humanness and in her value and that she was made in the image of God, all these other things wouldn't have mattered. 
But because we live in a society that's so rooted in shaming women, another story became true. And so a lot of my life, in particular, like, you know, my early 20s, was really rooted on trying to prove people wrong, like trying to prove mm-hmm. that I was worthy. Yeah. Um, but it was not in the best ways. <laughs> <laughs> it was in an sure. angry filled rage state all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And organizing got me to a place where I realized, oh, I get to do this mm-hmm. and stop being so angry about it. Mm-hmm. I get to do and stop feeling enraged about my mom's story right. or my dad's story. And I get to hold parts of those that are good and healthy and the rest mm-hmm. of them don't define my value. Yep. And that's why I stay because I feel like there's dozens of women today like my mom and there's dozens of people in their own respective suffering who don't see that. And I feel like they're if we could change people into that space more and more and more, we could actually see more spaces of abundance and love and inclusivity and all the things that we all wish we had. Right. Um, So that's kind of a little bit about, you know, why I'm still here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks Catalina. Mm -hmm. Well, I can say uh, you are certainly a, a woman who inspires and, and, uh, uh, energizes me so and i i know for a fact that you uh play that role and are a role model for so many others too so uh, i appreciate you being with us and um thanks for this conversation and for the great work you do thank you thank you so much i really appreciate your words and practicing you know to accept compliments so <laughs> i accept all the good stuff um and thank you for for letting me be here and have this conversation with you For Catalina, community organizing gave her a community and a practice for discovering and embodying a sense of dignity and worth. And as an organizer, she's been part of many leaders discovering that sense for themselves. Community organizing asks us to address not only symptoms of injustice, but the root causes themselves. To build power, to set the agenda, and to create the kind of community where everyone has access and belonging. It's a spiritual practice for doing justice in the neighborhoods where God has called us to live and worship. When is a time you felt clear about your own sense of power and dignity? And what has your experience with community organizing been as a person of faith? I pray that more and more churches committed to place will take seriously the call to build power, to accompany neighbors in solidarity, and create communities that amplify the common good. And I'm grateful to Catalina for sharing a part of her story and wisdom as a part of this work. Until next time, thanks for joining me at the table, and peace be with you. Thanks for listening to At the Table, Christian community for the common good. If you've appreciated this conversation, be sure to subscribe to receive updates on new episodes and share this podcast with friends and colleagues. You can also keep up to date by visiting my website, nicholastangin.com. Thanks for listening and peace be with you.